Hi there, this is Jonathan from pureandsimplebible.com. Welcome back to the PSB podcast. And I'm very thankful for an opportunity to study the Bible with you today, although it's just me. I don't have a guest. I have run out of guests and backup recordings, etc., so I've got to get some more content. I'm working on it. It's been a challenge during the fall semester and my internship that I'm doing for marriage and family therapy. So I'm working on it, and hopefully I'll get some guests and new content back in here soon. So I'm going to play for you a recording of a Bible study that I led at Valley Parkway, the church that I work with in Louisville, Valley Parkway Church of Christ. And we're going to do an expository study on Acts chapter 2. I invite you to join, maybe have your Bible handy and listen with us. Let's jump into that, shall we? There are a few chapters in the Bible that may be more special than others. And that doesn't mean that any chapter in the Bible is not worth reading, but we can probably relate to that uh, in a relationship that we have or in some sort of goal that took a long time to reach. Every day leading up to that goal was necessary, but whenever you got there, that was a very special moment. When you graduated, when you get married, you remember those things, right? So if you were to ask me, uh, Jonathan, tell me about day number 912 of your marriage. I would say, uh, I don't really know if I can recall anything. Maybe where we lived. That's about it. But ask me about day one, and I'll say, how much time do you got? Because that was a very special day, the day we got married. And there are chapters in the Bible that are that way. You know, if I were to say, tell me about Nahum, you know, or tell me about Micah chapter 2. Some of you out there would be like, how much time you got, Jonathan? Because I'm ready to tell you about it. But for myself, there are certain chapters I'd go, oh, I'll get back to you on that. One of the chapters in the Bible that I believe is the most memorable because of what leads up to it, what it represents, and what comes after it is Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is commonly called the hub of the Bible. Everything led up to, obviously, Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection. But then after that, there's this time in Acts 2 where the new covenant begins. And just like all covenants before it, it begins with power and just awesome, uh, miraculous things that are going on. And then it begins a new era, a new relationship between God and His people. And so what I'd like to do today is study Acts chapter 2 with you. And we're going to only use the Bible, no PowerPoint uh, I, I swing back and forth wildly on PowerPoint and, and how much I love it versus how much I loathe it. And so today I am using the Bible, and I challenge you to open up your Bible with me to Acts 2 or your Bible app on your phone, and we're going to read and expose together the teachings of this great chapter. Uh, kids who are, are hearing Acts chapter 2, uh, for maybe the first time that you remember, you've probably heard it 10 or 20 times, because we do preach from it a lot. This is where we get one of the best 
uh, scriptures to memorize as a kid, and that's Acts chapter 2, verse 38. I remember being in middle school and high school, and man, Acts 2.38 was one that I used with my friends all the time about how important it was to be baptized, right? When Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, it can't get any clearer than that. But why is that verse in the chapter? And why is this chapter in the Bible? That's what we're going to study today. Now, the book of Acts is one of a kind. There's four Gospels, so the the Gospels that come before it give us four different witnesses of Jesus. And some of them focus on Him fulfilling scriptures. Some of them focus on how He's uh, this universal Messiah, Savior for all people, that He is the Son of God, the Great I Am. But there's only one history of what happens after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and that's the book of Acts. So what we have here is a very unique view of what happened to the church when the church was established and the new age began. So uh, what I'd like to do is read from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. I think this verse summarizes the whole book. And when you see the structure of a book like a map, it makes reading the sections of it easier. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now that just seems uh, like he's prepping them for their ministry, but what he's doing is saying, okay, Acts chapter 1 through 7, you're going to stay in Jerusalem. Right? Acts chapter 8, you're going to go to the surrounding region of Judea and Samaria, and then Acts chapter 9 through 28, you're going to the ends of the world. That's what you'll find when you read the book of Acts. What I'd like to do is focus on this beginning part where they're in Jerusalem, and it's the birth of the church. It's the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it will mirror what God has done in every age when He starts something. And that it, it begins with wonderful, miraculous events followed by a more steady outpouring of his knowledge. Think about in Genesis chapter 6 through 9 with the flood, this great miraculous flooding of the world followed by an establishment of a covenant with Noah, and then it kind of levels out. Think about in Exodus uh, chapters, what, 4 through 11 or 12 with this great miraculous uh, experience in Egypt followed by a covenant law, and then people following the word. And here we are with a great miraculous event in Acts chapter 2 to begin the age that we're still in today. We're still in the Christian age, the the New Testament era. We're part of what the apostles will commonly call the last days. Now people like to attribute that phrase, the last days, like it's the end of time. But what it means is it's the last of God's great covenant eras before the end of the world and Jesus comes back and there's judgment. But those last days are going to begin at Pentecost. So, here we are in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, and it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Now, I won't spend this, this much time on every verse, but you've got to build on some sort of foundation so that the rest of it makes sense. So bear with me. 
as we unlock a couple of things. First, what is Pentecost? Pentecost. Well, from the uh, word 50, Pentecost, this is 50 days after a very special celebration of the Jews. And it's 50 days since Jesus was killed on a cross and has risen from the dead. It's that seventh Sunday after. Now, he's been with them for 40. You can see that from Acts chapter 1, verse 3. It says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And then Jesus, after those 40 days, ascends into heaven. And for 10 more days, they're kind of in a waiting, stasis mode. And here they are, 50 days after the resurrection something special happens. It says they were all together in one place. Who was there? All right, so I'm, I'm, I'm mentally thinking about how it's 50 days after. It's a, another special celebration of the Jews. Uh, Pentecost, I forgot to mention, was the Judaic celebration of first fruits. Aha, that's special for us as the church because this is the first fruits of. People being baptized. People being saved. So that makes it special for us. But who are they that were in this upper room? Go back to chapter 1, the very last verse, verse 26. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the eleven apostles. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. This was not a, a, a massive group of all the believers This is the apostles. And perhaps there were some others who were there with them. I'm not going to deny that. But this is a small group. And they're in a specific place when something very special happens. Verse 2. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Wind is special. It cools us. But it also has a destructive power. We've seen that recently with hurricanes coming through, right? What's special about wind here, uh, one of three times, this may be a Jonathan Edwards fact, you know, more of of my assumption than what the Bible uh, pattern may suggest, but I believe that this is talking about in the same vein of the breath of God, right? And three times it happens. You find it in Genesis chapter 2 that God breathed into man, rather chapter 1 and 2, the breath of life. In 1 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is God-breathed. That means there's something special about it from heaven. And here's the third time, in between Genesis and 2 Timothy, at this miraculous beginning of the Christian age, wind comes down. God's breath comes down upon these people. Verse 3, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And I wish I could visualize what that is. The Scripture says that. I'm going to leave that description there for your imagination. But again, let's focus on what fire represents in the Bible. This idea of of light and warmth and purity. Uh, uh, Fire purifies that which needs to be cleansed. Fire also is judgment and destruction and wrath. And all of this is what God's Word can do. God's Word is God-breathed, it's from Him, it is gentle, but it's also destructive for sin. It has the ability to purify, to give light and warmth along the way, and now this inspiration lands 
on the shoulders of the apostles. Verse 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is a direct fulfillment of Jesus' promise. You wait in Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to lead you into all truth. He said that many times. In John 16, I think there's a scripture in that chapter where he says that the Spirit will lead them into all truth. They didn't have all truth until this point. And suddenly, fishermen and a tax collector and a zealot and every other form that the apostles were has this knowledge given to them from the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, I want you, if you're taking notes, to write down Genesis chapter 11, because as we talk about this miraculous ability to overcome language, think about the curse of Babel, and how since almost the beginning of time, man has been cursed with the inability to communicate with others outside of their tribe, outside of their community. And we still struggle with it today. I think it's very ironic that one of our language learning apps is called Babel. Uh, Maybe you're familiar with that app. And that happens from time to time where people are looking for words or phrases to describe some secular thing and they'll use something from the Bible because nothing else describes it better than the Bible does. But the curse of Babel is now overcome that miraculously these people are able to speak in different languages. Look at verse 5. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? It goes on to express ten different languages that potentially, or more, that they could have been speaking at this time. Now, I'm reading out of the English Standard, and some of you are likely reading out of the New King James or the King James. And so there may be a slight difference in the way that it's uh, translated into English. But the idea here, and I think that the English Standard captures it very well, is by calling it a language and not using the word tongue throughout. The word tongue often can be confusing, and people assume that they were speaking this angelic, miraculous uh, babble speech. And yet, what they're speaking is a language like any of us could learn if we had enough time to do so. Now, it's been a while since I've spoken this language, but if I were to say this, there's only one person in this audience who would understand what I'm saying. Now, one person, my wife, knows more or less what I said. But I said that with probably the most American accent possible, so that if there was any Khmer people here from Cambodia, they would probably be going, because you'd be like, I could only understand like 80%, right? But if Kenneth stood up here, and Kenneth started rambling in perfect Khmer, I think probably Marissa and I's jaws would drop the most out of all of us, but what an amazing experience that would be for someone who doesn't speak the language to speak it perfectly with no study. And for the people who are native speakers to hear that there's no accent. And these these Galileans, these are like the rednecks of Israel, right? And so they have this twang that everybody knows that they're from Galilee. 
and yet here they are speaking perfectly in everybody else's language. What does that accomplish? It's a giant banner that says, take our message seriously. Because for the past three years, someone's been here who's been performing miracles. Now you and I, with our 21st century eyes, we're probably going, why didn't they listen to Jesus? You know, he did the miracles, they should have listened. But sometimes we forget that there was always a group nearby of Pharisees. Not, maybe not always, but many times there's a group of Pharisees nearby, and they're immediately discrediting what he was doing. So you have Jesus performing miracles, which were very clearly seen, but then you also had people saying, he didn't do it. He didn't do it. It was by the power of the devil that he did it, so don't listen to him. And what this leads to is confusion among the masses. There were those who believed. Jesus uh, appeared to over 500 witnesses, as 1 Corinthians 15 says. So those 40 days, he was very busy. But he didn't appear to everyone. From the very beginning of the Christian movement, it's always been about faith. Even during a miraculous age, Jesus didn't just appear to thousands and thousands and thousands and say, here I am, so now you all can believe in me. We have in Acts 2, the very first gospel sermon where somebody who saw Jesus now tells somebody who didn't see Jesus. And the reason that they're speaking in different languages is because even though Jesus had done miracles, he had just been one person, well, now there's 12. And you could maybe deny one, but now it's getting harder to deny 12. And not only can you not deny what they're saying, you don't understand what they're saying if you don't speak Parthian or Armenian or all the languages that are there presently. And so the Pharisees, maybe they're present, but they don't know what to say. What do we say? How do we stop this? Aha, I know what we'll say. They're drunk. And that's the best they can come up with. Now, I have not been around a whole lot of drunk people. And all the ones who I have been around, I have never seen them break out in a foreign language that they've never studied before. So that's probably the weakest excuse that one could give. And Peter begins in Acts chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles, look at that. Acts chapter 14, and he will preach all the way until 36. This is the sermon. And what he's going to do is he'll first answer the charge, are we drunk? And then he'll do what we do commonly when we preach. He'll kind of break down into a three-part sermon with three scriptures, and he will use these three scriptures to make the point that Jesus is the Christ. So let's look at uh, what he says first about being drunk, and then we'll consider the scriptures that he used. Verse 14, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, meaning it's only 9 a.m. Now, that works most of the time. There's always a bell curve, I suppose. An alcoholic can get drunk in the morning as well as the night. But this was sufficient for his audience because it was obvious that they weren't acting like drunks, that they weren't moving like drunks. And so for him to say, it's 9 o'clock, boys, silences the critics. And from this point on, he's going to preach to them about Jesus. And so you could look at verse 17, and this is Joel chapter 2. 
You can look at verse 25, and this is Psalm 16. And you can look at verse 34, and it's Psalm 110. And so I see here this structure of these three different verses, and he's going to explain to them how they are able to speak this way. That's the first question that everybody's got. How are you doing this? How are we speaking this way? Why it matters that we're speaking this way, and what you should do about it that we're speaking this way. That's the structure of this chapter. Let's read Joel chapter 2, which is Acts chapter 2, verse 17. But it's Joel 2, verse 28 through 32, and it says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, you and I have a very special, I'm assuming, we have a very special connection to Bible verses, like the one I mentioned, Acts 2.38. That's very special. John 3.16. To this audience, for him to quote Joel 2, similar chills are going to go up their spine. Joel 2? For nearly a thousand years, we've been looking forward to these last days when God's going to pour out His Spirit on His servants. I mean, think what they had been to in the past 800 years. From being God's national people in a holy land to being destroyed and taken away in captivity to coming back and rebuilding just this insignificant temple compared to what Solomon had built and then going through 400 years of prophetic silence. They are ready in ways like they've never been ready before to have God's Spirit speak to them again. And here comes 12 country bumpkins speaking in every language possible. I find it interesting in Joel 2, it didn't really mention speaking in languages. It just said the Spirit's going to be poured out. And yet they accept it. Why? Because there's no other explanation. that They couldn't have studied this long. And as a result of this very miraculous deed happening, they're going to take their message seriously. A couple more points for those of you who are taking notes. Why did God promise the outpouring of the outpouring of the Spirit, and why is it important? Number one, it powerfully announces new covenants. God poured out His Spirit, like I said, in Genesis six and in Exodus nineteen, and here He is in Acts two, pouring out the Spirit again. Number two, the outpouring proves Jesus' messiahship. People can no longer deny His resurrection. Number three, it assists in the building of a new church, or rather of the church, in the absence of a completely written word. And number four, it inaugurates a new era of revelation. Now, Peter will start preaching after he's quoted this in verse 22. So read with me there, please. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works 
and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He establishes a, a, a series of truths for them to know. Jesus came with miracles and power. You can't deny it anymore because you've seen what we're capable of. And if Jesus came with miracles and power, and if God did this and it was part of the plan, and if you did kill him, now probably in that crowd were some of the very same people that 50 days ago had shouted, crucify him, crucify him. And if not, at least that information had spread through this crowd of what had happened 50 days ago. You killed him. God raised that Jesus from the dead. And so we've seen how the outpouring accomplished, and that was through them speaking in tongues. But now why did it need to happen? Why did the outpouring need to come? And he quotes from Psalm chapter 16. Read with me. We're in Acts chapter 2, verse 25, where the quote begins. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And Peter will go on to ask this question. If David's not talking about himself, who's he talking about? Because you can go, this is what he says to the crowd, you can go and see David's tomb. So when David says, you won't abandon my soul, and yet David's body's still there, he's still not been resurrected, who has been? Who's been resurrected that God has brought back from the dead? Let me ask these 11 companions of mine who are able to miraculously do things. Who do you think he raised from the dead? And they could respond, Jesus, all the way down. And their testimony would be true based on the outpouring of the Spirit. And so because they see that this is Jesus, look at verse 33. Being therefore exalted, or rather verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, and this is a quote from Psalm chapter 110, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You know, Jesus in Matthew chapter 22 used the same psalm. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were questioning him and they were trying to trap him and they never could. And at the end of all of their questions, he says, I have a question for you. Whose son is the Messiah? And they said, the son of David. And he said, then how could it be? And then he quotes this psalm and they say, we don't know. They couldn't answer it then. And they can't answer it now. Notice the critics are silent. They've been silent through this whole thing because everything that Peter is saying makes absolute sense. You've seen the evidence that we can speak in tongues. 
based on that evidence and our eyewitness testimony that Jesus is risen, this scripture's teaching about him, here's what I am concluding. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, that is Jesus, made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. And that's the most powerful gospel invitation you might ever see written in the scriptures. Because every preacher's dream happens next. And if I could ever preach and have this sort of response, then, I mean, obviously that would be one of those things you'd love to put on your resume. You know, preach sermon, 3,000 baptized. (laughs) But it says, verse 37, Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Verse 38, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What shall we do? You want to know, that that question is, is asked two times in the book of Acts. It's asked by this Jewish crowd, and it's asked by a pagan Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16. And in both cases, something different is given to them. Now, some people use that and they'll say, aha, uh, you Church of Christers. In Acts 16, it says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And you guys are out there promoting baptism. And uh, the Philippian jailer didn't have to be baptized because when he said, what do we do? He just had to believe. The book of Acts never gives the HBRCB in the one account, what you'll find is that each person is given what they needed at the moment, but ultimately they follow the HBRCB plan that we commonly preach. Did these Jews hear? Of course they did. Did they believe? Of course they did. It doesn't say that because these are things that they already had and knew. Whereas a, a pagan who believed in idols and false gods, when he says, what do I need to do? If Paul said, you need to be baptized, do you know what he would be doing? He'd be getting wet. And that's it, because baptism wouldn't mean anything to someone who didn't believe. And so the pagan is told, you need to believe in Jesus. Now, later it says that he takes them home, cleans them up, they study more, and what happens next? He gets baptized. And so the plan happens every time. But what is recorded is what they need at the moment. Now, what would Jews who have been raised in the Scriptures and know the Word of God need to hear when they ask the question, what must I do to be saved? They don't need to be told to believe. They've been doing that. They don't need to be told to listen or hear. They've been reading that. But they do need to change. So they need to repent. And when you repent, and you understand that you were wrong, and so now you've got to start doing what's right, you need to be baptized for the remission of sins. I can't help but talk about this for a moment, because I remember being in high school, and some of my good buddies who I would talk about Acts 2.38 with would always say, you know that word for in Greek is ice. And anytime someone brings up Greek, suddenly they're, you know, the sage right? 
So being 16 years old and somebody saying, you know, uh, in Greek, the word for is ice, and that means as a result of. So you're baptized as a result of the forgiveness of sins, meaning Jesus paid the price, he atoned for your sins, and as a result of, of that forgiveness, you get baptized to dedicate your life to him. You may have heard something like that. Maybe you were part of a group that practiced that. That's not what that word means. And that's not what Acts 2.38 is teaching. If my understanding is right, the word ice, which is the English word for, it happens 1,493 times in the New Testament. You want to know how many times the King James, with all of their translators, the New American Standard, the English Standard, all of our English translations that we commonly use, do you want to know how many times they translate it as, as a result of? Zero. All across the New Testament, they recognize that's not a proper translation. They translate it sometimes as into or in, but never as the result of. What does that mean? That when we're baptized, we are outside of Christ, and baptism puts us in Christ. Now, where's grace in this? Because... Again, some people are going to say, all you preach is baptism and you never talk about grace. Grace is found in Acts chapter 2, verse 21, where anyone, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, anyone, rather, I'm going to go ahead and read it since I'm misquoting it. It shall come to pass that everyone, I like that one better, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There's grace right there. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. There's an acronym for you. I heard that recently. God's riches at Christ's expense. And what Peter's done in Acts chapter 2 is explained that at the cost of Jesus' life, His blood was shed so that God could give His riches to you. That's grace. And it's all over Acts chapter 2. But grace does not excuse a lack of faith. Acts, or Ephesians 2, verse 8, the scripture that's often used, it says we're not saved by works. It says we're saved by grace through faith. Faith is accomplished at the point of baptism. It takes faith to listen, and everything, every single one of you had faith enough to be here today to listen to the Word of God. It takes faith to believe that this message is true when none of us saw Jesus rise from the dead. It takes faith to repent and to look at all of the treasures of this world and say, I reject them for something better. It takes faith to confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And it takes faith to be baptized for the remission of sins. And any of those actions, items, obediences, commands, whatever you want to call it, any of those without faith is dead. It takes faith. But Acts chapter 2, verse 38, clearly teaches and shows these Jews, what do you need to do? You need to repent and be baptized. And what I would suggest to you today, what do you need to do, anyone out there? You need to repent and be baptized. One of the most special things about the gospel is that it doesn't change depending on who you are and where you're from. And getting to go all over the world and getting to preach and baptize people 
on this country and that country and this and that. That common faith that always ends in baptism is so special. Now, verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. You know what that tells me? Is that Peter took time to make sure they understood Acts 2.38. Right? And I've had this problem for years where I thought, if I just tell you Acts 2.38, that means you get it. But we don't know how long this sermon went on. All it says is with many other words. He could have preached like Paul, you know, till the night. He could have preached hours. He needed them to understand what it meant. And they got it. Because in verse 41 it says, So those who received His Word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now verse 42-46 through 46 is what the church is doing together. And I give it to you as homework to read and meditate on it. But I'd like to conclude our sermon with verse 47. The church here is praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We don't have a committee here that determines whether or not you get to be baptized. We don't have a vote. Our elders don't decide. That decision rests on the heart of each person when they come to an understanding. And when you're ready to be baptized, know this, that when you go down into that water, and you're washing sins away, and you come out of it, the Lord is adding you to the church. It's not the elders, it's not the preacher, it's not the leadership, it's not this tribunal or that. The Lord does. The moment you come out of the water, you're part of the church universal, the saved, the house of faith. And we encourage you to be a part of a church local as well, this congregation, so that you can be edified and built and trained, and so that you can edify and build and train us. The zeal of somebody who has recently been baptized is one of those things that if we could bottle it, we'd be millionaires. Because I love the zeal of somebody that's been baptized. But you, who are recent in the faith, you understand that you need the wisdom and the steadiness and the maturity of those who've been here for a season or two. So we need everyone. And so that's where I'm going to offer the gospel invitation today. It's for anyone who needs the gospel. We offer it to two groups. Those who've not been baptized and those who have. And if you've not been baptized, hopefully Acts 2 has come alive to show you the power of the cross and how Jesus' blood washes away our sins when we're baptized. And if you are a Christian and you look at this teaching or others that we've read today in the Bible and you see that you're not following the way as you should. We offer this invitation for you to make things right. If there's one of either class, please come as we stand and sing a song. Well, that's the end of the study from a couple weeks ago, whenever I preached that at Valley Parkway. And I hope that it was one that is encouraging to you. Um, a lot of people who listen to this program are familiar with Acts 2, especially verse 38. And so it, it may not have been new information for some of you, but for others, Perhaps it is. And if this is your first time studying in Acts chapter 2, 
then I really want you to take some time to meditate on the things that we discussed and uh, maybe open up your Bible and read it again yourself. I think it will be encouraging and helpful for you to do so. There's a whole lot of good information in Acts 2, and uh, I just want to challenge you to take advantage of all that's there and that is available. Now, there is a podcast, and I think I've mentioned this on my program before, um, but when I preach from the book of Acts in this episode, I can't help but think about Brother Clint DeFrance. And he has a podcast called Verse by Verse. And so I follow him on um, Apple Podcasts. I don't know what other platforms he's on. I imagine he's probably on most of the big ones where you can get podcasts from. But if you just search for Verse by Verse, uh, Clint DeFrance does expository style teaching in, the, in this podcast that he has called Verse by Verse, and he goes through the book of Acts. I bet you can't guess how. That's right, verse by verse. Anyway, uh, he's his studies are, are uh, a lot more in-depth than the one that I presented. I think that it's going to give you a whole lot of meat from the book of Acts, and I want to encourage you to go check it out if you haven't already. So go check out Verse by Verse by Clint DeFrance. And while you're checking out Clint and his podcast, if you're haven't subscribed to Pure and Simple Bible on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Music, uh, I want to encourage you to do so and leave a five-star rating. I just got a new one, and it was very encouraging to hear it and to hear that the podcast is helpful for people, so please do so. Well, that's it for now, and I want to encourage you to go to the website, pureandsimplebible.com, to check out all the free resources that are there for you to use and download. I use them regularly, and I hope that other people are as well. That's what they're there for, to help give members of the Lord's Church resources that are high quality and free to download and use with their friends. So check it out. And until next time, this is Jonathan Edwards. Always remember God loves you very much, and I do too. Lord willing, see you soon. Well, I'm here to tell you a story, a story that is true, about a judge by the name of Gideon. He was a man like me and you. Well, this room's in some trouble.